I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. On January the 18th, we did our first live video podcast, um, and I was delighted to be joined by Caitlin Ross and Liz Robinson. So the reason for doing the live video podcast was really so that we had the opportunity for us as a community to get together and people could share comments and, and ask questions, which is a fantastic thing and something that we're going to be doing again in February. So do look out for details about that. Now, Caitlin was talking about Big Education Challenge. The £1 million prize fund seeks to reward bold ideas with the potential to transform education. The challenge is split into two prizes, the Groundbreaker Prize for youth-led innovations from applicants aged 18 to 25 with bold ideas and the Game Changer Prize for experienced innovators of any age with a track record of leading innovative approaches with social impact. The prize launched in November 2022 and applications will close in February 2023. Now, Liz Robinson joined me as part of that discussion, and she's the CEO of the Multi-Academy Trust, Big Education. So as well as discussing the prize, we were able to talk about some of the education challenges we had, some of our thoughts about where education is and maybe where it will develop into the future, um, and hopefully give a little spark or a little kernel, as I think Caitlin said, and in terms of where education might go and how you can get involved in that change. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Big Change's brand new challenge prize, Big Education Challenge. So I'm very pleased to welcome Caitlin Ross from Big Change and we have Liz Robinson, who's the CEO from Big Education. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. So Caitlin, why don't you start us off with exactly what the challenge is who's it for, and, and, and a bit of context. Yeah, of course. Well, first off, thanks again for having me. And um, we're excited to share the challenge with you, with your, with your audience. So thanks to everybody tuning in. So what is the Big Education Challenge? Uh, the Big Education Challenge is a £1 million prize funds that will support and reward old ideas with the potential to transform uh, education and learning. You know, not quite that magic wand that you were talking about, but hopefully as close as we can get. Um, this will uh, consist of two prizes. Uh, one is the Groundbreaker Prize, and this is for 18 to 25-year-olds with bold ideas with the potential to transform education and learning. And then the other prize is the Game Changer Prize, which for more experienced innovators uh, with a track record of running projects or approaches with tangible social impact. The Big Education Challenge uh, is run and uh, designed by Big Change. Uh, we are a charity that was founded about 10 years ago to act as a catalyst to uh, transform education and learning systems. Our vision, our purpose in doing all of this is to create a society where all young people are set up to thrive in life, not just in exams. And in the UK, we do this in, in two different ways. Um, so we have the challenge, which I've just described. 
And we also run a, a big education conversation, which is meant to support inclusive conversations about the purpose of education and learning. And this challenge that we're running is actually um, kind of, we've, we've been talking about it as an evolution and not a revolution in how we work, because we actually have 10 years of experience as a grant maker. Uh, we have backed over 40 um, innovative projects and ideas uh, working at the front lines of change uh, over the past 10 years, including, of course, big education. It's, our, it's my, it was my privilege uh, to work with, with Liz as an innovator with all the work that she's doing. Uh, but we've also uh, backed some hopefully familiar names at a really early stage, um, including Voice 21, who we backed at their inception. Uh, they're now working in, in hundreds of schools across the across the UK uh, to improve um, spoken spoken language ability in oracy. Uh, we've backed the difference uh, who are rethinking how we work in people referral units and rethinking inclusion practices. Um, and we've also backed uh, the likes of Frontline, uh, who, um, when they were founded 10 years ago, were rethinking how um, uh, social workers are trained to support young people. And they're now working with over 67,000 uh, families across the UK. So we have some experience in backing these kinds of ideas, but we're really excited to try this new challenge methodology to source the, the best possible ideas from the grassroots, from young people, from teachers, from carers, from the people who have the, the lived experience of what is working and not working in education and whose ideas should really be at the fronts of um, the kind of change that we need to create an education system that is fit for purpose. And like I was saying before, I think this idea of the ability not just to talk about it but to actually have the the progress like I say the 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 idea of actually what we're going to talk about could become something you know and and I think the more people are involved the more opportunities there are for not just this particular challenge and obviously the funding and and to get this like I say this sort of seed to to grow but actually you know we don't know who's going to want to get involved and as soon as people feel like I think that snowball's starting to really move then people will get more and more and more on, which is absolutely fantastic. And that's what we like, not just the conversations, but the ability to make a, to make a real difference. Um, exactly. So Liz, why don't... Sorry, sorry, Kellen. Oh, no, I said exactly. I was just agreeing with you. <laughs> <laughs> so Liz, why don't you take us into uh, a little bit of your sort of day in the life currently and, and what, why this sort of is, is so important for you? Sure, thank you, Mark. Um, great to be here. So um, first thing I should say is just to clarify, because... Uh, we in Big Change are great friends and we both have big in our names and it can be quite confusing. So we are different organisations. We're not we're not part of the same organisation. Um, we are um, a multi-academy trust. So I'm responsible for our three schools, which are all in London, um, Surrey Square in Southwark and School 21 and School 360 in, in Stratford. Um, and as well as running our schools, um, we run a number of different programs and projects um, focused on uh, a more expansive education. So uh, why, are we, why are we called big as well? We, well, because we believe that children and young people in this country need a big education, an expansive education, uh, which encompasses um, what we sometimes talk about as head heart and hand so yes of course children and young people need a core of academic learning but we all know and agree and i think that's almost universally agreed that they need a bunch of other things as well and actually defining what those other things are 
that that we need to teach um, is a big part of what we need to do as educators. We need to go back to uh, think about what the purpose of school really is. Um, big change, Caitlin there was talking about uh, to thrive in life and not just exams. It's a great way of putting it. Um, there, there, there are many different ways we can express that. But we, we've got to go back to really challenging ourselves around what the purpose of our school is. Because at the moment, it doesn't work really for anybody. It doesn't work for students. Uh, a third of students of course, because of the way our exam system works, uh, fail, inverted commas, at, at GCSE at the end of Key Stage 4 after 12 years of statutory schooling because um, a third of students have to have to not get the grades because that's how the system works. So we have a system with built-in failure um, and we all know, broadly speaking, who those third of students are. They're broadly the most underserved and disadvantaged in our communities, uh, which is, is just shocking. So it doesn't work for those children, but actually the students who do inverted commas achieve within the system actually are having a pretty reductive and often very stressful and pressurised experience. And then the irony being that um, employers uh, then turn around to us as educators and say, well, hang on a minute, you're not actually giving us the skills that we want in our businesses and in and in our organisations. So uh, quite who it works for, I don't know. And I have to say, as a parent of primary school age children myself, um, it definitely doesn't work for parents either because it's like some sort of arms race um, through the, the system of inverted commas choice um, to get your kids into certain schools. Um, and it, it is a toxic situation. So that was that was my um, exposition of the problem. Um, so a big education, what we're trying to do, uh, running three uh, state schools in challenging urban inner London contexts is to actually put our money where our mouth is and try and do those things differently. So across our schools, there's a range of different um, practices, signature practices, which exemplify this idea of a big education. And we're trying to think about the most um, powerful, impactful ways to take some of those practices and some of those ideas out to influence other people um, to be brave and make the difference um, that we believe is so important. And I think for me, one of the big things is, I think a lot of people think like that. I think a lot of people wish that the schools that they're involved in were like that. But it takes a, a fearless leader, a fearless head that says, we know this is what children need and what we need to do is to put it in place and the things which you have to do, whether that's Ofsted, whether it's you know exams, whatever the things happen to be, we know that if we've got a fantastic education, it will probably work all its way through that and we'll still come out with an outstanding um, school and those things as well. But it's quite hard, I think, sometimes for those schools that feel like they're struggling or feel like they have to do things a certain way just to kind of get going you know that that sort of swan idea of kind of the the feeds are going a million miles an hour and they're just sort of trying to keep a sort of a happy face on the on on the front so um Liz first of all what do you think it is that those that feel like yes I'd like to have a school like you know, an education system like you were describing but feel like I'm not quite sure how I can put that into my current situation yeah, it's, great. it's a great question, Mark, and it is easy to feel a bit powerless and a bit overwhelmed because there are complex structural barriers to us making some of the kind of changes that we believe in. So um, even in our, our own schools where we are pushing the boundaries around many aspects, we still feel like we're in the foothills, really, when you look at 
innovative practice in a global context um, because of the kind of constraints. Or even indeed, when you look at the independent sector in England, um, there is so much more freedom. And that is absolutely fascinating about where the most privileged in society are, are, are as parents and, and students are going, which is away from GCSEs, away from formal qualifications and into much richer, more diverse experiences. And that's happening at some of our top independent, top inverted commas, independent schools around the country. So it is very interesting. Um, but the state system is, of course, um, has all those constraints. So what can you, what can people do? Well, look, we, we've been in the last 12 years under a government where we have not been aligned with the direction of travel. And so um, our approach hasn't been to sort of try and change policy or change uh, Nick Gibbs views on some of these big issues, because we, we just fundamentally disagree. Um, so we've been inspired by the great Sir Tim Brighouse, who has this great expression about finding the gaps in the hedges. Um, so in other words, finding the space where you can get on and do things. And the truth is, in, in English schools, we actually have one of the most devolved um, jurisdictions um, in, in the world. So in other words, um, head teachers like myself, I was a head teacher for many years, and trust leaders have a huge amount of freedom, in fact, about how we do things. Um, there isn't a national curriculum that applies to multi-academy trusts some people think there should be but multi-academy trusts do not have to follow the national curriculum you don't there's no legal requirement to teach um thing pedagogies in a certain way um however that huge freedom is coupled with some of the most extreme high stakes narrow accountability in the world so we have this freedom but then we have these incredible this incredibly high stakes accountability that goes with it so as you say that word fearless i don't think any leader i certainly would not class myself as fearless i'm can be very fearful because it the account that accountability is real and it applies to me and our, our schools just as much as it does to anybody else um but it does take i suppose uh leaders who are prepared to accept feel the fear and do it anyway i know it's a bit cheesy um but it, and that doesn't mean just kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. uh these are sophisticated nuanced approaches and what we really advocate within big education is a systemic view you need to think about the school as a whole organization and not just kind of randomly decide that oh yeah i fancy doing project-based learning because that sounds great so let's just start doing that You've got to be really interrogating, well, why do you think project-based learning is good? What are you trying to get out of it? What's the additionality? What's the additional learning? And you need rigor um, in the way that you innovate. Um, so new things, innovative ideas done badly is just like anything else done badly. You know, it's not going to work. So we have a strong focus on kind of disciplined innovation and rigor um, and doing things properly and thoroughly um or not just kind of running after things because they sound like a good idea or it's new and shiny um and so we, we want to have a go with it yeah and that is really important and i think that's where these conversations are really interesting because it kind of it puts the reality onto the kind of like say the sort of the new shiny object syndrome of it could look like this and it could like that um and caitlin tell me I know you don't have a, uh, a crystal ball here, but but do you have any sort of inkling of maybe what might come out of these uh, initiatives through through the challenge? Do you think there might be some kind of sort of whole scale change? Is it just a, a small thing that might get developed? What's your sort of initial thought? 
You know, that's a really good question. One of the um, most exciting things about doing this challenge and going really public with this kind of with this kind of funding is I'm really excited to see what we're going to get. Like, I'm sure I'm going to see some things that I've never seen before. But um, one of the things that we um, really uh, feel strongly about is that the kind of uh, ideas that we would want to uh, support with this challenge have transformational potential. And what that means for us, like first and foremost, is these ideas are going to be challenging what the purpose of different areas of education and learning are, and really looking, really picking them up and examining them and make and seeing, okay, right, is uh, is the is the purpose of the different areas of education and learning uh, that that I'm working in, sort of, is that is that really fit for purpose? Is that setting young people up to thrive in life and in society? And so uh, traditionally, and um, also with this challenge, we've been sort of, you know agnostic within the areas of education that we've supported. Um, we've supported um, things across you know, all age groups um, from uh, even in areas that are sort of education adjacent from social work to, to, to youth offending. Uh, so we're really excited to see how uh, the, these different innovators, it, on, honestly, especially the young people, seeing sort of like the, the different ways in which they're really challenging the assumptions about what the purpose of the area of education and learning uh, that they're trying to change is and i'm so excited to learn just as much from these from these innovators as hopefully you know they will they will from us along the process and i think for me listening to to young people is is incredibly important but i think also liz what you said before that sense of there isn't anybody that's involved in any part of this that feels like they're getting what they need. We certainly know it's not right for children, you know, the increase in mental health issues and their overall well-being. And, you know, we're, we're currently in a, a situation where, where teachers are obviously thinking about striking. And I sort of think about the, the, the situation with children is that their main objective is to grow and to thrive. And and we often talk here on the podcast about, you know, allowing toddlers, especially when they're learning to walk, they just fail all the time. They get up, they fall over, they take one step and bit by bit they find their way. And what we do is we create an environment for them to be safe as the adults, as the people that can kind of put all those things in place but allow that growing. And we sort of hit school and then all of a sudden it suddenly becomes a little bit too structured, some people would say. Um but then within that, like you say, you have employers saying we don't have the skills coming out of school because this isn't what we need. It's not about the exams. We want about the skills and the ability to have a conversation. It's certainly things you mentioned primary school children. We've got teenage children here. And that ability, can you make a phone call and just speak to somebody? Oh, no, it's all online. It's going to only be text. There are so many different types of skills which, which are just sort of being lost as time goes on. Um, it'd be interesting if there was ever any point where there's a, a sort of a round table where we have sort of children educate leaders um people from industry actually just having almost like a chart where everyone could put down what they want to see and where those things kind of cross over and actually have that as a starting point of kind of these are the sorts of sort of things that we want to we want to do so for, from your point of view liz what's the What's the starting point from you? Like, say, there, there are certain curriculum things that you'll have to do, certain things that you want to do. 
But are we really talking about what it is that children need at a fundamental level in, in terms of getting that excitement going, that feeling safe, the sense of failure? I mean, how, how does that sort of work within within big education and, and how do you sort of foster that? Yeah, great question. And I, I love your, you know, the sort of metaphorical or literal sense of, you know, young people and policymakers being round a table at virtual or otherwise. Um, and actually that's, a, you know, I think what an organisation that I think is doing such interesting work in that space is called States of Mind. And I've been working with them. They're, they're actually applying to the fund. So you never know. You may hear more <laughs> hey. about um, And who, who run participatory action learning with students. So they empower students as researchers and have done a fantastic piece of work called Breaking the Silence, uh, which was a four year research project that the students ran the research project themselves, looking, really asking all these questions. And what ended up happening was that they redesigned the Ofsted framework um, and they talked to Ofsted in loads of Ofsted inspectors, a fantastic film about it. Um, which if you really listen, so if you really listen to what students say, you know, they they will say all of this right so so i suppose in some senses the arguments of the, the problem statement i would say is actually pretty pretty universally understood i would say by you know 90 percent of people in this country be them parents employers students themselves unfortunately probably the some of the 10 percent who don't agree with that um are in the department of education which is a bit <laughs> of a downside but i think that is true i think they're very very unrepresentative of views across the country so i think the problem statement is kind of agreed so you know what did we do about that so i guess a couple of things to say and i'll be brief um we've spent a lot of time investing in leadership and that's one of the things that big change supported us with was developing a leadership program which is called the big leadership adventure there's our little plug for that uh, which is a two-year development program for leaders who want to change makers in the system and that is that's important because as you say that uh, leaders create the context, they cre create the environment and the psychological safety for the teachers and the staff and therefore the students in the school to do something differently, to be able to take risks, inverted commas, to be able to work in slightly different ways. In other words, ways that don't simply optimise for exam success. OK, so what we're talking about here is making some trade offs where we're putting some additional time, resource and focus into into activities that are not directly linked to exam success. So that may mean taking some curriculum time away from a GCSE subject and spending some of that time doing something different. So what that looks like um, as an example in our schools, in school 21 uh, we, we we run a program called real world learning um, in key stage four and key stage five so in the place of a ninth gcse students do eight gcses many many most students in the country do nine because of the way that eback and buckets and progress eight buckets you know you want to have options but we do eight and we stick with eight and in the place of a ninth students actually go out on placement on a weekly basis and work in an employment situation, solving a real world problem with an employer, be that a, a business or a charity or whatever, an area as much as we can do it, that's of particular interest to them. So that's a trade-off because we could be spending that time resource um, and all the effort that goes into making that program work on extra booster lessons for their GCSEs. OK, so that's an, an example of a real world trade off. Now, that takes courage from the leaders. Ultimately, me, I'm the res person responsible to the DfE and the head teacher um, to, to make that call and make that decision. We are going to spend that resource, um, be it 
time or financial resources in a different way and you've got to be clear then well what are the outcomes we're trying to get out of that how is that better and different to doing another GCSE it's got to be good right um and we've got to have ways of then evidencing the impact of that and empowering young people to be able to articulate the additional skills and experiences um as part of their ongoing journey which is another thing that big change um have been partnering with on which is around assessment which is a whole nother kind of topic around um, how do we help um, have more meaningful ways of evidencing the range of skills, dispositions, aptitudes, experiences, um, that is what a full and rich education should be. um, And that isn't simply a matter of a couple of numbers and letters against your name uh, when you leave school. And that's a really interesting thing to talk about, I guess, from a student point of view, because most of them will say, I'm just after nines and eights, and that, that's what I'm about. And then we, I've had many conversations with our kids about what that looks like. Does that look like about studying all day, every day? And it may still not be the case. Is it about having a balanced life? Is it about structuring in your way? Is it about focusing on certain things? Is it about understanding what you really love? Is there any reason why all of those eight or nine subjects should actually be the thing you want to spend all your time doing. Absolutely, we need a broad curriculum. We need a chance to experience things. But we all know if we just take our own lives, you know, we experience loads of things and we think, oh, but I really enjoy gardening, football, sewing, whatever it happens to be. And that's when you then put your time in. You know, we have a basic level of things that we want to do. So, I mean, that's a really sort of interesting point. And and Caitlin, I'm interested from sort of a charity point of view. You must hear lots of these types of conversations from different people at different levels of organisations and that sort of thing. What's your sort of feeling about all of that, sort of partly in relation to what Liz said, but in terms of where you think that change may be able to come in? That's a really good question. And I just to say, like, everything that Liz has been talking about just sort of illustrates um, the point that, like, teachers, school leaders, sort of like those at the at the front lines of education need to be at the front line of this of this change uh, that we need to education so it's fit for purpose. Um, so thanks for your continued great work. It's a, it's a pleasure to work with you. Um, you know, as you were speaking about um, sort of focusing on grades, possibly at, a, um, at the detriment to passion and sort of like finding your purpose, uh, just today um, I was speaking to one of our um, Big Education Challenge champions who are folks that we've engaged to help us get the word out. Um, a young man um, called Jaden Corfield, who is a co-founder of Rekindle School, which is a supplementary school up in Manchester, and also Outliers, uh, which is an organization trying to foster positive masculinity in, in young men in Salford, uh, where he's from. And I think his his exact words, and I hope I'm not misquoting him, the sort of like education system as it is now, like squashes passion before it even gets to set in. And that's uh, um, the, his, his experience of the education system was that, that it just like really limits your belief. And that's, that's just tragic. That's not, that's not okay. That's the opposite of what educators are supposed to do. That's the opposite of what you know, teachers get into this profession to do. Uh, so we hear it uh, from all across the system. One organization that we funded it's called Heads Up for Head Teachers, uh, which is a, a network of head teachers um, and uh, coaching and support for head teachers who are in a position where they don't feel like they're in a position where they can do the job that they signed up to do. They're, you know, they are um, 
subjected to this toxic accountability that we've you know, that we've alluded to throughout uh, this conversation. And they're working with hundreds of head teachers who appear to be sort of quietly suffering across the country. And you know, we have so many people who's uh, who have so much passion and so so much potential and really wants to you know foster the next generation uh, so that they're set up to thrive and uh, you know take take care of society because it'll be it'll be it'll be their turn next. And it's just you know no one wants education to be like this. And so what's um, this change? One of the things that we talk about a big change is sort of like ed education being everybody's business, alluding to your former point of sort of like there needing to be like a, like a coalition of businesses and young people and teachers talking about what they, what they want that change to be. And that's, and we think that this change has to come from across the system. Like there is, there is no silver bullet. There is no one group within education that can fit, that can fix it all. It needs to be a collaborative effort. So it needs a, you know, everyone who is affected by education, which is everyone, to get stuck in. Um, and we're really excited to welcome bold ideas from across the system. Um, one of the things that we were really intentional about is with our Game Changer Prize, making sure that it's open to social innovators who might have an idea for education, but might not necessarily have a background in education because you know, education is everyone's business. Everyone has some sort of lived experience of it. So we're really welcoming bold ideas from across the system because this, uh, you know, in order to make the changes to education that need to happen to set all young people up to thrive, we need a cross a cross system effort. And that's real music to my ears because that's really where this podcast started. I was I was doing music workshops across the country, and I was seeing teachers who were so enthusiastic, really feeling like they were banging their heads against a brick wall. They'd obviously got in to make a difference. And, you know, we, we've talked about what great schools and great leaders can do, but we also know that's not the case across every single school. And I was seeing quite a lot of people just thinking, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't really what I want to be doing, but I don't know how to do anything about it. And so I was just wanting to sort of join those dots. It literally was that, well, I know you don't know this as a teacher, but down the road I've been in a school and they're doing it like X or you know in Scotland they're doing this or someone in America's doing this it doesn't matter about the curriculum or the setup because the principles of what they're doing and how they're doing it are actually happening now and sometimes that's just a small thing you can bring in and you can implement it straight away or even if you will have to maybe take it to your senior leadership at least you can say this is happening somewhere can we at least have a conversation or get it going and then hopefully that change can happen in your own environment but even if it's not at least you can feel supported that I think what you believed in to begin with actually is something that you've got a community of people who also believe. And I think when you feel like you're on a sort of the crest of a wave with people who are in your corner and, and feeling the same way, you are making a difference, even if maybe your immediate situation doesn't necessarily, necessarily feel like that. And I'm sure, Liz, you kind of, you've sort of come across those things yourself. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the other thing to say is that be you know staff who work in our schools wouldn't say it's not it's not all kind of sunshine and roses either um we believe in a big education and we exist in an imperfect system and it's really blooming hard and you know we are we do and we I, I was a head teacher for many years 13 years at Surrey Square and we used to say that to staff which is like it's hard and we try and put people off from coming to work at the school because in terms of really testing their resolve because 
it is it is hard to to because we're looking at a number of different think a number frankly a number of different pedagogies when we really get down to it because we're asking teach people to be kind of coaches and work on relationships and you know restorative justice restorative practice we have a values-based curriculum so we're asking people to invest in relationships with students um, and reflective conversations which is different and more vested than a kind of top-down discipline policy which says these are the rules do it or this is the consequence cognitively it's much more complex. Emotionally, it's much more complex and demanding. It's much, much more rewarding. And it is demanding, right? Because it's not as simple as saying, right, if a child throws a pencil, that is the consequence, they get this, that's going to happen. You know, and all these kind of zero tolerance approaches, right? Cognitively, that's simpler. And as a teacher, some, you know, so, so, it's easy to idealize. Um, I'm not trying to make it seem undoable, but it's just recognizing that it is more complex. And so, you know, asking people to to, to in, adopt project-based learning as a pedagogy, which we do have in all of our schools or interdisciplinary uh, or kind of um, real world focused learning, um, it, it's, it's more complex because it, you can't just use a plan from a, a pre-planned scheme because it's got to be real. So it's got to be responsive to, well, what's the real problem we're working on? How do we co-design that? How do we co-produce that with the students? Now, that is a skill set that not all teachers have. And it's a skill set that, frankly, is fairly scarce, given the last kind of uh, 12 years of, of what pedagogy and input has looked like. And it's hard, right? It's a, it's a more complex pedagogy to get really good at of kind of running workshops and facilitating that and having more student autonomy, like that's easy to do badly, right? That's easy to do badly and hard to do well. Whereas if, you know, direct instruction, follow maths mastery, and I'm not criticizing maths mastery, we use maths mastery, we adapt it, you know, that is, it, it's much easier to get that right, right? And we've got 24,000 schools and however many thousand teachers, it's hard and without um, you know, infrastructure and support to help teachers do this really well, you know, we have seen that in our schools. People come and they, they believe they want to do it. And if we haven't got the right infrastructure and support there to help them get good at all that, you know, the, that range of ped pedagogies, um, you know, it's demanding on people. So um, anyway, that was a bit negative. I didn't mean to sound negative. I just think it, it's reflective of why it's so challenging, right, is partly because it's conceptually more complex to work in this way, as opposed to the prize is good results. I get good results by doing all my, you know, testing, screening, who are my marginal kids? We know how to catch them up. We know how to do exam prep. You know, it, it's, well, okay, that's my job. I get it. So in so um we're up with demand we're asking i suppose that's the quid pro quo for teachers the passion that we want it to be more holistic and it's recognizing that that is it takes a sophistication of approach um which we've got to recognize as a profession we need to engage in and support people um with the really rigorous training approaches in those alternative pedagogies and i'm assuming 
as time goes on, that gets harder, or you are going literally back to basics because you're going to have staff that have never worked in those conditions. You're going to have staff who were maybe not out of education themselves very long, who have only experienced it as pupils as well. So while they might like to have been different, their own experience is that this is how it works. This is how it goes. I've now trained and now I'm sort of facilitating that same kind of thing. And so, you know, we've got leaders, the, you know, who, who have come through that and have come through, you know, multi-academy trusts, for example, where, it's quite straightforward like it's all about the scores on the doors and this is how we do it and we have these fairly kind of rigid approaches to management and you know and and people have built a lot of success in the system so there's a lot of vested interest in the status quo because a lot of professionals have built their reputation and their status through uh, being very good at optimizing for exam success and kind of accepting that so you know not everybody not everybody in the system even though on one level they might say they want change there are a lot of people vested in the status quo i mean and that really just like i say tells you how complex it is but i think in some ways it gives me a little bit of comfort in as much as you can't fix it you can't make it different for everybody so you then have to do what you can and that is like i say signing up so that you want to take part in the challenge you want to get your voice out there you want to get your ideas out there it goes back to what's the one thing i can do today and so often here we hear people saying you know teachers that they remember is always about how it made them feel it was never about how they were taught maths or english or science or even a subject that they really liked although that often brought themselves out it's the fact that they knew they were having a tough time they were able to have a conversation they remembered there was an important day happening over the weekends and it became you know a human to human albeit respectful with with everything that it needs to be within a school system but actually i see you you see me oh right okay now we're we're working with each other and and that sort of transcends traditional education in terms of what people start seeing in terms of you know we're now learning certain subjects in a certain way but i think there's always something you can do like you're saying if you can't fix it all but you can have that conversation you can have that relationship in which way and you you can have that within your school community but also outside of your school community as well which is uh, is really important yeah i know i think i think the point is there are there are lots of things you can do, you know. And at the end of the day, as a teacher, uh, you you someone cl you close the door and you get on with your job. And you have a lot. You have um, thousands of decision points and choice points in any given day. One of the amazing things about teaching is that it's ultimately a dynamic profession because it is happening live. Um, you know, you can't just kind of think, oh, I'll close my laptop for five minutes and go and have a, you know, like people who work in more different, you know, it's live. And how the students respond to you, how you respond, the state you're in, how well prepared you are, etc. cetera, um, you know, are these micro factors in how a different, how a lesson pans out and all the rest of it. I mean, it's incredibly fascinating when you think about it. And we have these opportunities as teachers to make different decisions. So, um, you know, as you say, relationship building um, is such a powerful one. And actually, as teachers, you can tweak things, you can try a different thing. And sometimes something like oracy that um, 
Caitlin mentioned and the fantastic work of Voice 21, which is part of big education and grew out of big education, um, is is that it, it's it's that, that you can make big changes. But you can also make some relatively small changes in your classroom that make a very big difference. So the difference of simply breaking up your teacher input with saying, right, you know, turn and talk to the person next to you, have a discussion. I'm going to be you know, doing whatever to, to, you know, to ask you to feedback is nobody's going to sort of stop you from, from a top down point of view. You can get on and do implement some of those changes in your classroom. Um, so that's the that is the power of connection and learning from others, as you say. And uh, there are there are there are thousands of those kind of tweaks that that can build up over time to being something more significant. But um, I, I don't want the message to be there's nothing you can do because actually, <laughs> as teachers, once the door's shut, you've got a lot of autonomy to get on with things um, in the way that that you think is going to work best for your students. Yeah, and no, I think that's re- that's really important. And. Caitlin, is someone who's working with a charity that is making a difference, that is making a change, how do you sort of perceive that from your school education experience into your now sort of work life and that ability for you personally as sort of making that difference sort of within the role that you're you're doing? I'm sort of interested how that sort of how that sort of correlation works for you. Yeah, of course. And I think um, before I answer that question, I think I wanted to just reflect on something I was thinking about as Liz was speaking, which is that, you know, as much as much as we can know, um, like I, I do not have a background as an educator, but we have from learning from the folks that we funded before uh, a decent understanding that doing things differently, especially in education, is really hard. It's really hard. And uh, one of the purposes we see of our funding and especially through the challenge is giving innovators that time and space and resource to try things differently, to get get that evidence base, to show that a new way is possible so that others can see that a new way is possible. And hopefully this becomes, you know, a a grassroots movement. And that's also part of the reason that we designed the challenge specifically to be in two different phases. Uh, So um, our our first phase will be to pick 15 finalists who will get small grants and a tailored um, package of capacity building supports to just do some really intense testing of their, and and really early testing of their idea for six months, um, at which point we pick six winners to to win a grand prize, uh, a grand cash prize uh, to fully pilot their ideas. So all of the way that we have funded to date and the way that we've, um, the way that we have designed this challenge, which has been co-designed with our youth advisory group, with the folks that we funded before, has been in response to the challenges of doing things differently and how important that time, space, and resources. Um, so that's that is that. But your question was about me. Um, well, you might clock from my accent. I did not go through the British education system, and to be honest, like I had such bad test anxiety when I was younger. I don't know what I would have done if I'd been rigorously tested. I uh, had to do a, a rigorous um, standardized test at 16, and then again at 18. It's just um, I used to, I had a, a friend growing up who was going through the British education system, and I was really taken aback by how she had to narrow her education down so so quickly, and that see that was really shocking to me. And I'm not, of course, the uh, the Amer- the American education system has its own challenges. Um, but it made like going, like, you know, being in the position that I'm in now, which is kind of like lifting up the hood of the British education system and seeing what works and what doesn't really makes me kind of grateful for the education that I had, which was 
more 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 time and more opportunity to kind of keep things quite broad. Um, I did a liberal arts degree, which meant that I had a focus on international relations, but I was also taking science classes, language classes. You know, while I wanted to go on and do international development, I still like I took a geology class where we went and like hung out at the San Andreas Fault and learned how earthquakes worked. And I'm really, you know, that was I enjoyed it at the time, but um, the doing the doing the work that I do now um, makes me really grateful that I didn't have to make such tough decisions so early that could have, you know, limited my options or sort of my or, you know, created an environment where I was telling some telling myself some, like pretty limited stories about my own potential. Um, and in education in general, sort of I come at this from a from a belief and a, and a desire to, um, you know, work towards social justice in, in my work. You met you may I've seen from my, from my CV, I've, I've tried this in a few different ways. You know, I've, I've done international development, class aid work, economic development, sort of gender equity stuff. And through all of my work, what became so clear is that if you're interested in equity, if you're interested in social justice and the future, sort of education is a huge lever and so important to get right if we are going to create a society that's um, going to look you know, look after, look after, look after its citizens best and um, to equip the next generation to, to thrive and um, be the, be the people they want to be. I love that. And it's, it always just sort of warms my heart, really, that, you know, we can see headlines, we can hear there's a challenge, and we know people are making a difference. But the thing I love about the podcast is that you start to see, hear that passion, that understanding and the journey that everyone has to make that difference it's individual to everybody but there's that common thread i think of that ah yes this is the reason why this can happen is because there's a group of people whether it's a big change whether it's a big education wherever it happens to be that are doing it in their way based on their experiences their understanding and that kind of it has to look a certain way it's never going to work because there's what seven or eight billion people in the planet (laughs) it's always going to be different in, in a different way and i think being able to share the ideas but then like you say mold them make them work in a way that's going to work for you and your particular um situation is um is really really important and and tomorrow for example um the podcast that's going to go live i was talking to julia lynch and she's in charge of the global girl project and so if you listen to that we're not talking about going to school we're talking about leadership we're talking about people in the global south who have a completely different world a completely different human situation from an education point of view and a life point of view still education it's still making a difference but it has to be starting from a different place than like say how we're going to be teaching maths or english or science or or any kind of general thing but it's still when it starts at that kind of human level and meeting people where they are with their situation then all of a sudden it can make 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 a really big difference so we, we have a question that's coming so let's have a look so this comes from andrew thank you very much andrew um do you think covid grade inflation showed that teachers are in fact seeing something more in their students than the exams can measure and how can we value more of that talent that the exams are actually missing so liz why don't you start us off on that great question i mean um where do we start i mean the the way that we assess students in COVID was different, wasn't it? It was not a um, 
not a test it was based on more based on typicality and a range of information so that we could um, create um, our, our best fit grade right which is more how certainly GCSEs used to be before the go for forms which was a combination of different types of ways of assessing right so so um, it was a uh, it was wrong to compare them like for like in my view because it was a different sort of assessment to the way the tests are and and the point that I made sort of in my um, initial rant um, about GCSEs is you know we have this norm reference system whereby it doesn't matter how well a particular cohort do if they just do much better than the previous year the same number of students are going to get the same number the, the grades even if a student the following year scored the same as you know somebody who got a nine the previous year if there's more of them scoring at that level they're not all going to get a nine you know it, it's unlike the US system of which there are many many uh, faults and criticisms but everybody in principle can graduate high school um, it, it's a universal um, kind of qualification to get a high school graduation certificate um, but that's not true of our exam system so the whole thing is kind of in an algorithm which is stuck <laughs> to not enable all students to be successful and what we saw in the CAGs and, and during COVID was students being assessed, assessed in a more holistic way um, and in a more accurate way and I think you know it's interesting when you look at key stage two um, and SATs and when um, writing has moved to be teacher assessed rather than the tests and the quality of writing in primary schools has improved so markedly uh, moving away from those reductive ridiculous tests when students had to you know perform and write a particular style and they were taught in this ridiculously formulaic way of how to write different genres so um you know teachers are capable and of course we have other parts of our system including early years and um, key stage one which are which are teacher assessed and there are very sophisticated approaches to moderation um which which exists so it's kind of uh, we do have place in the system where this works and indeed if we look at um one of my great friends just finished just handed in his phd thesis um you know at, at the top end when we're making people into into doctor, doctorates and, and phds um we have a, a viva we have a, a different way of assessing so this sort of obsession with exams um it is a go part of the govian 2010 reforms that exams are the fairest best way um that's not that's not true uh, you know it, you can't that's the argument you get back is that you get unconscious bias um and teachers can't be can't be fair and can't be equitable um of course they can you look at all sorts of systems like um music exams for example you know if you go and do your grade five piano it is a it is assessed by an expert teacher and we don't say oh i don't think you really got a distinction because the teacher was biased you know we accept those things as being quite credible and quite quite serious so there are lots of examples where we do assess pupils in different ways um our one of our big projects uh, around rethinking assessment and assessment reform if anyone's interested do go and have a look at that rethinkingassessment.com we've got a whole range of different projects going on at the moment uh, looking about how firstly you have to know what you want to assess and you have to articulate those broader range of skills and dispositions that you want to assess and of course there are different ways of assessing them um and there there are e even in this current system 
um, things like drama. Of course, they have to be an element of teacher assessment because people can't fit everything into a neat box. And it's it's an example of the metrics, you know, the desire for simple numeric metrics um, has become so obsessive and targets around that that we have a bit of a cliche, but we do have seriously have the tail wagging the dog of the system of this kind of maniacal focus on wanting numbers in boxes that somehow tell us something about quality. And it is redu reduced to an absolute absurd extent. And and Caitlin, what are your thoughts? And my, my first thought is that kind of, I can't remember who told me now, but they were saying, we're going back to this sort of employer idea that, you know, in, in some ways, exams become irrelevant because yes they are what they are and you've taken them what they are but because these days you can actually see everyone's actual cv through social media through their interactions you know some kind of version of linkedin which kind of has people endorsing all the sorts of things that you do i mean caitlin you walk you work with an, an organization i'm sure you get to see people who want to be involved and, and, and work with you i'm sure the first thing you don't look at is necessarily just the exam results because you you know, there's, we know there's more to it than that. Yeah, of course. And one of the things that I'm really looking forward to, like learning more about the challenge is, is different ideas and sort of like, what's the, what are the best ways that we can, A, sort of um, make sure that young people come out of education, being able to put their best foot forward, being able to show all of their different talents, all of their, all of their different achievements um, beyond their test scores. Um, you know, as, a, as, I'm, as, I'm not a, as I'm not an educator, I've never had to grade an exam. Um, I don't necessarily, Liz is probably, well, Liz is definitely uh, more of an authority to speak to how that works, uh, how that could work than I am. But it's just what's clear from what we're hearing from young people, from what we're hearing from teachers, what we're hearing from parents is that the, the current system just is, is really limiting and isn't setting young people up to put their best foot forwards. And, it's, and, and you know, as an employer, sort of, obviously, I haven't. I mean, to be honest, I didn't really, when I first started looking at CVs, when I started uh, hiring people in the UK, I didn't know people put their GCSE grades in and I, I didn't know what they meant. Um, but that could, uh, just being someone who didn't come through this system, I was like, I don't, I don't know what an A-star means. That sounds good. But like what I'm interested in is, um, you know, what are you, what are you passionate about? Sort of like what are the, cap what are the capabilities? What are the, what are the mindsets that you bring to, uh, to, to a job? Because that's going to tell me so much more about um, someone's capability, someone's potential than a number. Yeah. And I really think that's something for everyone to bear in mind, isn't it? If you're a student, a pupil going through, make sure that comes across in any communications that you have and as an employer and and people in the education system, just making people understand that. Just be authentically you in whatever format or way you interact with somebody. That authenticity is the thing that will shine through, which isn't to say you're not going to work hard and try and do the best you can because you have to take exams and that kind of thing. But I think seeing that bigger picture is obviously the most important thing and I just wanted to come back um, Liz you mentioned Sir Tim Brickhouse earlier um, and, and the primary sector the National Association for Primary Education have got their primary education summit in March so if you're involved in primary education anywhere um, please do check that out that's at nape.org.uk forward slash summit and that's involved there's a free Christian Schiller lecture given by um, Dr Neil Hawkes there's 11 pre-recorded presentations and also four uh, live discussions, which is uh, humanities, primary assessment, um, 
the environment and early years foundation stage as well so that's gonna be fantastic so that's it nape.org.uk forward slash summit so thank you both for being so enthusiastic and passionate about this which i, I knew was going to be the case um Caitlin, just finish us off with the final details that people really need to make sure they know in terms of dates, websites, and, and that kind of thing. Great. Well, um, we've still got a few weeks to submit if uh, you're hearing about the challenge for the first time. Um, and I'd, I'd start by just encouraging anyone who thinks they have a kernel of an idea, even if it's even if you've never tried it before, if you've never gotten funding, it doesn't matter. Like, that's what this challenge is for. We specialize in the early stage the kernels of an idea that have transformational potential. So if you never tried it before, doesn't matter. We still really want to hear from you. Um, and you have until February 22nd uh, to show to share your ideas with us. Um, we will be selecting and announcing finalists uh, in, in May. Um, and then after the six months of testing and um, capacity building supports, uh, we'll be sharing who our winners are in the late autumn of 2023. And uh, I really can't wait to read all of the ideas that we get and, and, and hear, hear from all of the potential innovators out there. Fantastic. Liz, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. Caitlin, thank you much for sharing about the challenge. And I really hope lots of people get involved and, uh, and we get some great kernels of those sort of starting points to make a big difference completely across the board. Everyone who's been here on the podcast live, thank you so much. I really appreciate you watching and thank you, Andy, for your for your comments. Really appreciate that. If you're listening on the audio podcast afterwards, um, I hope you've enjoyed this new kind of little format and, and also we'll do some more of these so you have the opportunity to get involved and, and, and comment on some, on some new ones coming through. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for listening. I hope this is the start of some amazing opportunities and some amazing ideas um, that the challenge can, can take forward. So thanks so much and we'll speak to you again very, very soon. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.